We're speaking with Dr. Uma Naidu today. She is the author of This Is Your Brain on Food, and she's joining us today from Boston, Massachusetts. Uma, so wonderful to connect with you. It's lovely to connect with you, Asha and, and Dean. It's, uh, I've been so excited to speak with both of you. We are big fans. We love what you do. We love the fact that your Thank field you. of psychiatry, actually, I started my journey. My undergrad was in psychology and biochemistry. And then my thoughts were, I'm going to go to psychiatry. You know, life just pulls you this way or that way. And I went to neurology. But even in neurology, I'm a behavioral neurologist. So more psychological than, yeah. So we love that aspect. So this Thank conversation you. is going to be about your journey and why you're doing this. I mean, the, at the end of the day, the why is the most important thing because the how and the what comes out of that. So if you want to tell us a little bit about your background, how, you know, even as early as you want to take it. <laughs> I would love that. So I, you know, I grew up in a very large uh, South Asian family and I skipped going to preschool, but I preferred to stay with my grandma during the day. And she was a home cook and a homemaker. And my mom, part of the reason I was with her is my mom was in medical school. So my mom was studying and I would be surrounded by a very large family growing up. And so my daytime was spent with her and weekends, the entire family would get together. So there was a lot of food, a lot of fun, a lot of nurturance and love. But, you know, here's the thing, as with uh, certain cultures, you know, half of them were physicians, allopathic physicians, and a few Ayurvedic practitioners. So there was that very strong influence in the middle of which around age five, I wanted to be an astronaut because I was fascinated by science. Yeah, I have no idea where it came from, but you know, my parents encouraged me. And But as I sort of grew a little bit more, I, I realized that there was all this fun and science around the medical profession. And I would play with my uncles who were, you know, residents in medicine, and I would play at their stethoscopes. So there was a strong influence, but also there was mindfulness and yoga and meditation that came in. My grandfather taught me how to meditate. All of those things were brought in. And I feel like when I moved away to study, I carried those components with me. And of course, I hadn't learned how to cook. And I hadn't learned how to cook because everyone else cooked. There were grandmothers, aunts, you know, older cousins in the kitchen. But my mom recognized that I loved science, so she taught me how to bake. And I realized that that was something I needed to learn how to do, especially when I began studying. And brought, you know, the spice blends and my mom's recipes and found that cooking became a very creative space for me. It became a space of mindful time at the end of the day, something I looked forward to. And I guess I just leaned into that and I would try recipes and get, you know, get emails from mom and try this and that and blend this spice. And I really grew to love it. Then I had this moment when I was a very young resident. And I link it to this because I was just learning to prescribe all these psychotropic medications and a patient came in and yelled at me. And he was a kind of a big burly guy. And I was a small resident and small in more ways than one because you're junior and you, you know, you want to please your patients and you're still developing your skills. And he insisted that I had caused him weight gain. And this was, you know, three weeks after starting a medication. I had his baseline weight. I knew it wasn't me. I knew it wasn't the medication just from looking at the data mm -hmm. in front of me. And Something happened at that moment because I was kind of timid and, and I looked at him and he had this massive cup of coffee. You guys know Boston and Dunkin' Donuts is our, probably our favorite <laughs> coffee. It's actually originated in Massachusetts. So something switched in my head and I said, hey, you know, you know, Bull, that's Colin Bull. And I said, you know, 
tell me what you put in your coffee. Part of it must have been that natural need to distract someone from yelling at you. But another thing was that something occurred to me and, and it was 20 ounce cup. And he said, well, I put this and I put that. And, you know, why is that important? So I said, let's sit down. And we broke down the fact and kind of calculated. I'm not a big believer in calories, but to him, it was a way to translate mm-hmm. the sugar information in there, the processed food information, probably more than a quarter cup of processed creamer, about eight teaspoons of sugar. And he was having two of these a day because he worked in a big construction site. He was a very active guy. He wasn't old. He wasn't like they hadn't gained a ton of weight, but he had definitely gained weight. And we were able to calculate that for him. And I realized in that moment how that conversation changed and how powerful it was to translate information to people and yeah. say, well, if you made this habit change, this is what we could do. And we ended up working, you know, he did need a medication. He continued on that. I was able to make my argument that, yes, it did cause weight gain, but this wasn't related. Can we tweak what you're doing right now? And for me, that realization came at an early stage, and I felt I needed to know more in order to prescribe pretty strong psychotropic medications, which I knew had devastating side effects as well. They were life-saving, and I still prescribed them, but I also felt a need to offer patients more. And that's where my you know, delving into nutrition and understanding how I could counsel people and what could I share came in. And then my detour to culinary school was a whole other thing that I didn't expect to come together in my work in nutritional psychiatry because all of this time, you know, as I was learning to cook, Julia Child was my friend and coach <laughs> on television because you know, she was on uh, public television in Boston and that's all I could afford. Couldn't afford cable TV at that point. And she would, you know, she would toss omelets and she would have this voice and she'd be so commanding in the kitchen, but so friendly. And I thought, well, gave me confidence because I was practicing all of the, the dishes And then when I realized that she had actually, this was her second career and her most famous career was actually in the culinary arts, I realized realized if she could do it, why not me? And I decided if there was a way to tweak my schedule that I could work an unbelievable number of hours, I would so that I could attend. And having graduated from there, I didn't still expect to be able to integrate it, but I was fortunate with good mentorship that, you know, I was putting these pieces together. And I was able to start my clinic and really start to put this together in an evaluation for patients who wanted more than just one method in a lifestyle measure to feel better. And I feel food is something where there's so much mental health stigma, even now. And we know that the silent pandemic is the mental health crisis, that it becomes a tool to talk to people. And I find that that was that was a very long story to say how I got there, yeah. but it was also a great way to start a conversation with people because I find even individuals who, who don't cook watch the Food Network. Yeah. So it's a great conversation starter to, um, and then an insight into, into what people are doing with their lives. That's beautiful. Amazing. That's absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's not about the journey. It's about the courage to take the leap, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, we've all, well, we have two kids, 13 and 15, 16 actually now. Yeah. And uh, we, 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 I tell them, I mean, they're pretty precocious as the audience know they've, they've, they've advanced pretty high, but I tell them more important than college and anything is attentiveness to opportunity to make a difference and then the courage to pull the trigger. Uh, so opportunities there for all sentient Perfect. beings, higher sentient yeah. beings that we are as humans is just, can you take that leap? Can you pull that trigger? And, and yeah. your story is all about that. You were listening, even at the, at the moment of highest anxiety where this guy is bullying you 
you you you flip the script and and change it to one of opportunity to help him. I mean, that's beautiful. That's power. That's true power, not physical yeah. power, but cognitive power. Love that. And and thank you. And now you're doing this in your clinics. The same thing was with us. I mean, a couple of the risks we took were pretty much our mentors said from going from UCSD, which was number one neuroscience program in the country, to Loma Linda. They said, oh, it's career suicide. We said, oh, it's okay. We'll take that suicidal path. And you take that risk. And what we've yeah. found in the communities are amazing. What you've done now is take this nutritional background, your history, what you learned from Julie Child and others, and then to apply it to your patient population is remarkable. Can you give us some stories about how you actually are applying it to your clinic model? Absolutely. So what I found is that over time, my model has changed. And it's changed because of two things. One is the just the emergence of more and more data around the gut-brain axis, gut microbiome, more and more studies around food and nutrients, but also the fact that the, the treatment plans have to be so highly personalized now. You know, I've had a mother and daughter that I evaluated. And it just was brought the point home for me because I was evaluating the mom, her teenage daughter came with her. They had an opposite reaction to the same healthy food and one couldn't tolerate it. So it, and, and the daughter didn't have any gastrointestinal issues or anything. So it taught me that I just had to be that much more personalized in terms of a, of a plan for each individual. The way that it works is that I try to People get referred to me, especially with the book out there, you know, people just generally call for consultation. And I try to understand, most importantly, what it is that they want. Because although many people lose weight, when I think you both know when people are eating healthier, they naturally lose weight. Mm -hmm. Because any movement away from the standard American diet will help us. But a lot of the time, I'd like them to have and be able to articulate a goal. And if they do come in, around weight loss. It's, it's related to the medication that they were being prescribed. Of course, that's completely understandable. But I don't like to pivot into, no, this is this is a method to lose weight. I think it's one of the goals that ends up happening. And we really focus on the symptom that they're trying to work on. For example, a young woman landed on my doorstep from a gastroenterologist, and she was very panicked and walked in, which is not often, you know, and said, you know, I need Zoloft. I've read up all about it. I know this is going to help my panic and you have to help me. And so, you know, I sat her down and spoke with her. But as we uncovered the history, she had actually changed her diet in the 18 months to two years prior to seeing me. And it all happened inadvertently because of a job change. She was promoted. And instead of eating meals at home and exercising on a regular basis, always having, being well hydrated, all the, all the simple sleeping well, sleeping in her own bed. She was traveling all the time and she was highly successful. but everything in her lifestyle had changed. She was keeping up with exercise, but she was having more glasses of wine because of a more business dinner. She was eating at airports. She was, you know, buying candy bars as snacks, things that she hadn't really been doing before because she was cooking and taking lunch to work. And what we were able to put together was that these were drastic changes and she really was suffering with dysbiosis. The way that it presented was with severe panic. And I was always fascinated by how that came out. So she was functioning. And she was working and able to cope. So we made a decision that she would not take a medication, but she would work with me very closely over time and make these adaptations. So from meal planning to telling her what snacks to take to thinking ahead to where she was traveling, which restaurants or supermarkets she could shop at, 
um, really thinking out of the box with her, she was then able to, you know, simple things like don't have a second glass of wine, do something else, you know, think about a different way to interact in that business environment where there was a, she was feeling a certain amount of pressure to have second glass or a cocktail, something like that. And, and both lifestyle tips and then dietary changes helped walk her back from her symptoms over time. Mm-hmm. And it took time, but she was consistent. She was patient and she knew from the outset it wasn't going to happen overnight. And that to me was just a great example of how you see those connections, um, that, that I see the connections in mental health, but also a powerful way to describe that she was committed and she made the changes. And over time, she felt significantly better, even yeah. though her life still involved those, you know, that much travel. This is, by the way, before COVID. So that's amazing. That, that's amazing. Yeah. A question I had, I mean, unless you have another, is uh, what food pattern do you recommend, one, and then we will get into the disease processes. I mean, we we think that almost all, if not all diseases are affected to some extent, but um, some of them significantly more. We talked about just now, we had a conversation with another group. We talked like Huntington's disease is not going to be affected much by food. But it's still going to be affected. But other diseases, like, you know, across from depression to anxiety to migraines to the dementia, all of them are going to be affected more. If you had to kind of pick the, what is the way you approach food with your patients? And, and I'm not trying to kind of pigeonhole you into a category, which I hate that. Yeah. Yeah. But what is, what's the general crux of what you're doing? So based on the fact that I do work with a personalized plan, I tweak it for each patient. I sort of think of it this way. I actually grew up plant-based. I was grew up in a vegetarian family. So with my patients, I really remain more diagnostic. It doesn't matter so much what I do for my own health, but I'm there to advise them, especially with mm-hmm. mental health. People are suffering on so many levels that, you know, it's hard to say to someone, well, you have to stop eating all of that and change to this diet. Mm-hmm. I personally think that tweaking each person's diet has helped them, even mm-hmm. teaching them healthy habits like Let's not worry about protein. Let's pay attention to the fiber. That's what we're lacking. You know, those simple things that I think we're missing in the larger scheme of the diet wars in America. But I find that the Mediterranean-style diet, and for those, especially when they've come in with weight gain from medications, being careful about where they're obtaining their carbohydrates from. I don't like to use the word ketogenic because people have a different impression of that, but it's really almost being careful about where they're obtaining their carbohydrates from, mm-hmm. making sure they get those fresh vegetables, the fruit, the beans, the nuts, seeds, legumes. Some of them eat, you know, seafoods. You know, one of the sources of omega-3 is not the only one. That type of thing and balancing that diet, at least until they assume a normal weight, and then we can, you know, bring back more things that they like. That's been a lot of, whether I call it that or not in my clinic, that's a lot of the principle behind, which, mm-hmm. which is what I think you're asking. Uh, behind how I'm thinking about it, because I feel that that is what has helped people the most. And then I might, you know, tweak which, you know, what dishes they make or adding the spices, which of course have some powerful effects and then make food interesting because, you know, people don't want to eat food that's healthy, but not tasty. And that's, that's, I think, where we get into these elimination and restrictive diets. And then there's a boomerang effect you know, and they get in trouble and the weight comes back or they, they're unhappy and, and they worsens their depression. So I find that that works. And then um, over time, just following and seeing what we can add back into their diet. I try as much as possible not to eliminate things if I don't have to, because except for the obvious unhealthy foods, but not to eliminate a food group 
um, unless there's a problem or, or unless there's a particular association that I've seen from the research with certain symptoms. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. When you look at the dietary patterns of Americans, well, we're going to talk about Americans because we live here, but as it happens, you see the same patterns in the rest of the world nowadays, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of room for improvement. We always bring the concept or the publication by the American Heart Association, The Simple Sevens, which looks at seven specific markers of health in the nation, whether it's physical activity, smoking, diet, glucose management, cholesterol, blood pressures, etc. There's seven of them. And when you look at the percentage of adults in the U.S. eating a healthy diet, as defined by the American Heart Association, which could be optimized, I, I believe, is less than 0.5%. Less than 0.5% of individuals in the United States actually eat a healthy diet. So I like the fact that you have painted an optimized picture, but then you also understand that it's about making small steps of change towards that optimal picture that matters the most, because we have to be able to show people that it can be interesting, it can be delicious, it can be easy. And that's the way it works. And that's what our experience has been yeah. in, in the realm of public health too. It's about small steps of success. Yeah. And I think I think we tend to be, you know, why, why do we have convenience foods? Well, my opinion is we have, one of the reasons we have convenience foods in America is because we're an impatient nation. Mm. You know, we're used to having things very easily. And I think that there's a way in which the evolution of food and frozen meals and frozen dinners and convenience stores all just became or evolved over time. And I think that that's something I just, uh, I, it's often a starting point in one of the pieces of the conversation I have with individuals that unless they're going to be willing to really be committed to a plan, it won't work because if yeah. they want, if they're going to be impatient and call me the next day or the, the next week and say, but this hasn't happened, it simply won't work. It's really understanding that they're firstly ready to make that change. And if they can think of, uh, speaking to your point, I said, you know, if they can think of one thing that they can change, it might be as simple as I'm not drinking enough water. I'm, I'm going to start cutting back on the soda that I'm drinking. And, you know, it, it could be a simple habit that could be very powerful. But what I find is when people notice a change, that's the most powerful because when they notice and then they feel it, then they want to do it. And then it's like, now I want more. And that's when we can build much more rapidly, more changes, it's still stepwise, but into a plan that ends up I think for more often than not uh, working for them. And, and and it's not perfect. Not everyone buys into it. Not everyone is a success story. And not everyone wants, feels that they have the patience to do it or their case is more complicated. Or the other thing that I've encountered is people who come to see me. So I have, I've worked with eating disorders, but I try to not take individuals with eating disorders in the clinic simply because those individuals really have to repair their relationship with food and it's much more complicated than the actual act of, say, someone who's binging and purging. It's much, you, you both know, it's much more complicated than that. And that's the reason I, I really need for them to come to a healthier place. And then we can tweak, you know, let's do this to improve your mood. But I have actually encountered a lot of people with orthorexia who come to me and they have such fixated sort of food habits that it it really is almost a version, in, in my clinical opinion, of almost an eating disorder because there's such rigidity around I can't eat this and I'm only counting these calories and I can only eat these food groups and that can become challenging so you know I don't oversell the work because it is important and I, I believe in it but not everyone finds the cure and some people struggle uh, a lot more and and just can't make some of the changes that I recommend. 
Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we we hate is the concept of uh, some of the words that are there out there in the culture are actually gateways to slipping back into the addiction diet lifestyle that we live. I mean, to maintain this this horrible dietary lifestyle that we have acquired over the last 50 years requires some language to maintain it there, right? I mean, despite all the information, one of the words is moderation. Moderation, I say, is a word that people use to get out of doing things because it has no denominator, no mathematical model, no quantifiable change, no direction, no dopamine stimulating pathway to get out of things. So it's useless. What you do is, I mean, for transparency's sake, we always say we're healthy vegans or whole food plant-based. <laughs> but when we do our work in the communities and in our clinics and our center, the Alzheimer's Prevention Program, we, we don't say, oh, you have to become vegan. No, it's okay. where you are and one step, only one step better, but in a quantifiable, measurable way, not in an amorphous way. Because if we do that, we're just <laughs> selling ourselves, basically. So, but when you do that, when, when, when you're able to help somebody achieve one little behavior, oh my goodness, right. it's your it's, it's moment, like, isn't it? it? It is. And that's actually, you know, it's just, we obviously practice in very similar ways because when they have that moment, it's like they're calling you back and now I want to do more. Now, you know, the list we yes. talked about, I'm ready, you know, and, and we still moderate that it's not, you know, 10 things on a list because I've learned the hard way. It does, that doesn't work. I've, I've also been on a learning curve as I've developed this out. But that's when they really are engaged. And then they tell their family and they, their families want to participate or their children want to participate. And they're changing how the family is eating at home and they get rid of, getting rid of the cookies and they're ordering in, ordering produce from farmers markets that they can now get delivered, or they're engaging in other behaviors around how they're shopping for food. So I think that those things are very powerful. And, yeah. you know, it's always exciting to me when when a teenage kid, one of my parents, one of my, the parents that I treat will say, well, they want to do that. You know, I'm, I'm seeing mom <laughs> do so well, or, you know, you know, and this, these are, you know, these are different diets who don't necessarily want to eat, but their parents are eating. So yeah. I always think that's powerful because that modeling behavior, right, is how the, the positive changes can happen. And, so and your background in culinary arts, is it's important because it's not about deprivation. It's not about elimination. It's about replacement. Yeah. So that cookie that you talked about, well, Aisha as a culinary artist says, well, it's about giving people the option of a healthy cookie. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's you know, it. You can have this. Right. Yeah. It yeah. is. It's like uh, not to put down North Korea, but I'm talking putting down the North Korean government uh, because there's no cookies, for God's sakes, in North Korean government. I think I'm just making things up. I'm just kidding. But but to live in such austerity where there is no cookies in your life, are you kidding? There would be a revolution yeah. in our house. That's true. The but, kids would leave. But right. you can have healthy cookies. Right. Uh, so right. that replacement is magical. That's it. Uh, absolutely. You know, I've sort of evolved as as my book has come out and as my thinking has has occurred and and my work has evolved as well. And one of the things I've realized is that whenever I'm, you know, quoted or or have something I report to media on and we talk about treats and cheats and all that, I really try to change that language because, you know, what we in this country call a treat is actually not a treat for your brain. So I, I started reword that in even how I speak. And then do exactly that. You know, what can you take? You know, what can you take and how can you make this healthy so that it has nutrients in it? But you still have that pleasure of, you know, that creamy, delicious chocolate mousse that you look forward to. I agree. It's not, you know, people become unhappy. And I say that as a psychiatrist, you know, people become unhappy if you take away things that they used to. But if you teach them things like, you know, eat the orange, 
have the clementine, but skip the store-bought orange juice. And here's why. You know, here, you know, on, on your computer and your laptop, yeah. even even in the virtual world, you know, here's let's look at this food label and let's see why I'm telling you that. And if you eat the orange, here's what you're going to get, you know. So a lot of those tips just in talking with people stick because they remember those. And when you like with the like with Bill, the patient I spoke about who yelled at me over his coffee, when when it makes sense. They remember it, and then they keep that habit. So even if they're traveling, they're not ordering the breakfast buffet with the orange juice that's store-bought. You know, they'll they'll have the fruit plate, and they'll have you know other elements of the meal that are healthier options. I love that. The three of us, we work with a population where you know brain health <clears throat> is the matter, is the subject. And when it comes to brain health, you don't see immediate results. I, I don't know about your practice in psychiatry, but I, I suspect there is no such thing as, you know, fixing it. Um, a lot of people go into the field, you know, trying to yeah. fix things. They're the fixers. Yeah. They get removed of things. It's almost as if, you know, you see a lesion on the skin, you put a cream on it, and it disappears. So brain health doesn't work that way, and especially people who yeah. come in with depression and anxiety, which is ubiquitous yeah. nowadays in our society. I wanted to kind of just pick your brain, no pun intended, but just give us an idea of, you know, what it looks like in your practice when somebody comes in with depression and they already have difficulty managing their lives, these specific mm. elements of their lives. And then you mm. add on some education about food and lifestyle. How how mm -hmm. do they receive it? And what has your experience been as far as them changing that course and seeing benefits? Sure. You know, I think you raised a really important point because one of the things that I have evolved in the model of my practice is that I do prescribe medications, but I try to separate out when I see individuals for nutritional psychiatry work that someone else is prescribing their medication if they're needing it. And some people actually don't. Some some are just, you know, interested in the work and they like that that higher functioning woman who developed anxiety. She was able to work and function despite having the anxiety because she was willing to make those changes. A lot of people, you know, if they're not able to get out of bed, then we really have to make sure that they get taken, even if we start nutritional strategies, that we're also treating the disease or they're treating, treating those symptoms so that they can function at a better level. And in those instances, I might talk to them rather than using words like exercise and you need X number of minutes of this type of, you know, workout, can, you know, can you walk the dog? Can you walk your children to school? Well, this is before COVID. Can you, you know, go and buy that cup of coffee or buy the newspaper, do something that involves movement? And then, uh, you know, usually we'd make sure that we initially may prescribe something to get them out of that depth of depression, but at the same time, slowly implementing strategies around what they're eating. So let's let's take out that breakfast cereal and let's try to have someone in your family maybe help you make something that's a healthier choice and here's why. So sometimes it can be extremely slow when someone is that sick. But I find that if you insert those nutritional ideas early, when someone is still depressed, you know, I've found that more often than not, those things will stick and, and often, you know, engage a family member and helping them or maybe even helping them learn to make a simple breakfast that's a healthier choice and then build in a routine. You know, can you walk the dog? Can you go get the newspaper? Can you have this for breakfast? And can you walk in the afternoon to do this? And, and then other individuals who are functioning and working but not doing well, it becomes really identifying what the symptoms are because, you know, I, I, often depression and anxiety will run together. I personally have a very big issue with 
for classification DSM-5 because I don't feel it captures enough individuals. Mm -hmm. And I feel like individuals with OCD could be depressed. Individuals with PTSD could be super anxious. There's no, and, and there are many individuals, and that's where I feel nutritional psychiatry fills a gap. Many individuals who kind of live in between and they have problems with their mood, not as severely depressed as needing a high dose of an antidepressant, and anxious, but you know, there are ways that you can help them through at least lifestyle changes to improve what they're feeling because they are functioning and they're able to get to work and that type of thing. And so based on the symptoms, then I will build in a dietary plan, you know, making sure to work with their primary care doctor, making sure that the screening labs are all okay. I feel like there's a place for supplementation when it's appropriate. I, th- I do think that because I'm generally in, a, in the US, our diets are not great. There's a place for supplementation. I've learned that the hard way as well. You know, I, I mm-hmm. came into it, you know, a little bit more bright-eyed about it. But then I realized that many individuals really do need some supplements to help out. But I always go to food choices first. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Love uh, that comprehensive yeah, approach. It has to be comprehensive. It has to be taking all of those elements into question. I, I, let's dive into some diseases. The concept of gut-brain axis has become very popular. Not because it's a, there's a lot of gimmicks out there, but this is not one of them. Yeah, some of the things that are paraphenomenon are gimmicks, you know, there's some of the pills and this and that. But the relation between the gut and the brain and, and moods and the and gut and brain is very well known. Would love to hear from you. I'm very interested in the concept of anxiety because I think it's ubiquitous in different degrees. Where do you see the science of anxiety and food and be it gut or otherwise, and uh, would love your perspective on the science of it. Absolutely. So, you know, I feel like when people know that the gut-brain axis exists and that there is this real connection, they start to appreciate that what they eat as one of the elements could, in fact, start to impact how they're feeling. What I find is that, especially for anxiety, it is extremely important for people to know the foods that we're eating in most of our everyday diets that are driving anxiety. And I tend to start there with individuals because time and time again, someone will come in and tell me, you know, I'm eating a pretty healthy diet, doctor. And, and, and it's, not, <laughs> you know, it's not for me to judge that, but I'm kind of trying to help them. So as they go down and go down their list, you know, I'll often find that they're drinking a ton of diet soda, for example, artificial mm-hmm. sweeteners, including stevia, which is considered natural, unfortunately drives anxiety you know, someone with depression may not realize that they think they're having this healthy salad for lunch, but they're adding processed cold meats to it and deli meats to their salad, or they're buying such a salad. But nitrates have been shown to worsen depression. So part of it is finding what they are eating and then helping them tweak that diet. And part of the reason is that those unhealthy nutrients shouldn't call them nutrients. There's unhealthy foods, the processed, the ultra-processed, the junk foods, the added and refined sugars, the artificial sweeteners, processed vegetable oils. Really, one of the ways that they disrupt and worsen anxiety is by disruption of the gut. So I feel like when they understand things, like if I'm eating that junk food diet, and most you know fast food places use less expensive oils, which are processed vegetable oils, and those are pro-inflammatory, it becomes sort of a setup for creating inflammation in the gut. And I think that explaining some of that to people while not overstating where the science is at, 
and sharing with them that these are ways that you could make tweaks to change and alter your diet. And usually when they start to understand that they are, you know, even even simple things, which I know you guys know, it's a lot of added sugars and savory foods. So, you know, store-bought pasta sauces, uh, ketchup, salad dressings that people don't, you know, I've had patients say, I'm eating a salad. You know, I, I heard you on this, heard you say that, but they're eating a salad and they're getting a bottle of ranch dressing and putting it on or, or, or the, the healthy vinaigrette, but you look at the label and it's this thick. Because- or, or honey mustard dressing, which has a ton of sugar in it. It's so sweet. It's I like know. dessert. It's, it's, it's like, exactly. And yeah. then, you know, it's, it's a fact, I wrote about this recently, that, you know, somewhere along the way in the U.S., breakfast became dessert because oh. in a lot of countries in the world, it's not a sweet breakfast, you know. And no. so you know, that starting right there. And so when I outline those foods and why, it starts to make sense. And then I usually explain it through, you know, I have a little model in my office online and show them kind of, this is where the gut is. This is where the brain is. Walk them through some of the science and then really say to them, if you start doing this, it will help you in this way. Let's try it. And if they, you know, if they buy into it, I think it makes a difference if they're starting to cut back on some of those unhealthy foods. They don't have to do all of it at once. And I have had people who stop drinking those cans of soda and become very anxious because, of course, they're not replacing the multiple grams of added sugar that they're drinking. So we've got to really tweak it and, and show them healthy forms of sugar and, you know, eating a piece of fruit and how this is how you can make these changes. And, you know, I think that some of that explanation helps people buy into yeah. why they should be doing it just by giving them a little bit like my first patient that I described, you know, breaking it down for someone brings them into the problem solving and it gives them, I feel, greater autonomy. And I think that that for me is helpful in the nutritional psychiatry realm because generally, you know, it's also taught me the the prescription pad that bringing that patient into the discussion makes them feel empowered, makes them feel they're helping to make the decision, but it's also accountability. You know, we're making this plan together. We're designing it together. We, we're putting down things that you are willing to try and willing to eat, willing to tweak. But that also makes you, you know, somewhat responsible for for the changes that you want to make. Absolutely. Yeah. The involvement and the ownership is critical in this because if they're not, and, and many of the studies, one of the examples I give is when we're looking at the community-based participatory kind of uh, research the questionnaires and the, and the programs had been created in the 1950s or 60s in Boston in 50-year-old white men, and then it was being applied to 70-year-old Hispanic women in San Bernardino. How is that connected at so many levels? It, even if you do it in that population, it has to be to some extent at the personal level, which doesn't avail itself in the clinic. You have to be there in mm-hmm. the communities. And that's that. so you're absolutely right. Now, uh, when it comes to things like anxiety and the food we're eating, I mean, what has happened over the last 70 years, we've actually changed biology of human beings profoundly. I mean, these foods repetitively are assaults on the GI system, which means the microbiome has changed. And, and I love something else you said there. We don't want to overstate the science. Oh, my goodness. The overstatement of the science is so ubiquitous that it, it, it gives us, the two of us, seizures when we hear that. The probiotic this and the taking these fecal pills. And somebody sent us a paper yeah. that uh, a case of they took fecal pill and Alzheimer's was reversed. And I don't want to be honorary, but I said, no, it was not. That's not science. That's not reality. Yeah. And if you look at yeah. in the internet and if you will go for the one case 
you can find one case of anything. Somebody in, in some place said that I, just... I ate a can of aluminum and my Alzheimer's was cured. One case right. doesn't make anything. Case, we've published case studies and we've put in more in the end of the case study by saying this is just a case study. This is not even the beginning. This is just a directional right. thing. So it's important. Given that the science has to be appropriate, we know some about the microbiome. We know it's important. Yes. We know that we, you can achieve it much more effectively by eating a diverse diet. Yes. We know that we can achieve it more by eating a non-processed diet. Mm-hmm. And a non-processed diet is more, more plant-based, and that's been fiber-based. Let's just say fiber-based. But, and that mm-hmm. will actually create a pattern and a direction where the body starts healing itself. When we hear biohacking and these, you know, that just gives us seizure. We look, looked at the vitamins, like you said. Vitamins, we were not against them. Uh, definitely, we're not against medicines. If somebody has high cholesterol, we're not going to say, oh, your diet's going to fix the high cholesterol yeah. overnight. Yeah. That's irresponsible. Absolutely. That creates mm-hmm. strokes. That creates, you take the medicine and then you implement lifestyle to see how much exactly. you can get away with. Yeah. So I love your approach of being pragmatic, science-based, but making sure that we don't let the popular topic of the day lead us, right. which, which is unprofessional and ethical. In many ways, absolutely, because you're essentially yeah. just selling yourself. Yeah. Well, I, you know, when I've, if I've heard y'all online and, and watch you, one of the things I really do appreciate is, you know, psychiatry and neurology are so linked, as you well know. And I think that this has to be a certain responsibility that we have. And especially where, where we are physicians, and I think people look to well-vetted sources. And I'm very new to social media. I have been on social media, maybe had a personal account in the past and didn't use it. But having a book released during a pandemic is what brought me to social media. And it really has been quite the experience because I often just see things that I am not, uh, I'm just not agreeing with. And it's really hard to be in the space and stick with not wanting to overstate things. And I think in mental health, one has to be so careful because like mm-hmm. I say all the time, it's not ten milligrams of Prozac or ten blueberries. It's it's everything together, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna tweak it as we go. You know, it's not one or the other, or that you know, food is the only way. It's one of the many tools, but it's a very powerful tool that that you can implement right now today, and yeah. and start to work on your emotional health. And I think that feels that has resonated with people. But you know, we still have have people even you know on our posts will will make the most bizarre comments. And I, I don't know where they, they're coming from or where they're getting this information from. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. A, it's a com- as human beings, we're confirmation driven beings because we want the center of comfort. So we want yeah. to believe the things that we have heard, the things that makes us comfort. And we search for data that confirms that bias. Yeah. We search for data that confirms the bias of the masses, because then you have more of a group group think. Mm-hmm. But it's critical that we let the data, I mean, that's what has to happen. The other thing that has to happen, we think, is that there has to be a movement towards public health. I mean, what we do in the clinics yeah. is great. It's, it's a bit selfish, though, isn't it? I love the interaction with patients, but we know that that one person at a time can only do so much. That's why right. the books, that's why I, even though right. social, media. social media and all of that. Yeah, but media. the other thing that has to happen is people like you, us, uh, uh, Ramsey, and, and others joining you know, this myopic zero-sum economics, like, oh my gosh, if that person's book goes out, mine is going to... No. There are 7 billion people we can help, especially yeah, if we're right. science-based, if we, can, right. we can link our efforts together and then create a public health movement based on science and mm-hmm. applicability. So that's why that. we love connecting with you here 
and hopefully long term. Not hopefully. You're stuck with us now. Uh, I love that. Yeah, yeah I, because I, 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 I really appreciate what you said about a movement because one yeah. of the things, Dean, to yes, count count me in both of you. One of the things I found that was very unexpected was you know I wrote a book and I thought well it'll come out and I'll continue in my clinic and do my thing. Well. The book coming out during the pandemic was a whole other thing because a lot of work had to go into sharing it because you know what it's like. It, you mm. put your blood, sweat, and tears, and this is my first book, and you know, it was hard. It was hard to get the word out. But I found that it then actually became a powerful tool to reach people who really wanted to hear the message. And that's where I realized that the one-to-one interaction with the patient, of course it's helpful, of course it's meaningful, but I wish it could be broader. And so, you know, where I've taken my social media platform is really more in an educational direction and where people can read up the study if they want to. We share all forms of research from well-vetted sources, but, you know, people can, in other words, if I say something, I want, want people to know there's somewhere they can read up about the study yeah. and that they can disagree. And I completely agree with both of you. You know, I could say, this is what's in today. And there'll still be three studies that say she's completely wrong. And this is what the three studies show. I mean, we know we know this, but how do we synthesize the information through a public health forum that actually makes it easier for people than the diet wars that they faced with or yeah. the very polarizing influences in the health space, let's say, by different people, not just MDs, but, but everyone. So yeah. I think that that is very hard for people. Yeah, I, I don't think it can be done on a one-to-one basis only. So I, I love that idea. No, we we definitely believe in this movement. We are talking to people that are very, I mean, you're not 100% plant-based, but what you're doing, which is pushing people towards non-processed food, towards cleaner food, towards Mm -hmm. changing them from the standard American diet is incredibly powerful. And we're talking to others the same way that they don't have to be. If they're moving in a direction that's science-based and moving people towards cleaner diet, we can find a common Mm -hmm. language to move the populations. And that's important. Mm -hmm. We definitely welcome greater, broader, more empowering, more nuanced, nuanced, not simple-minded conversations, Mm -hmm. because without that, we're actually selling ourselves. And the worst thing that can happen is because of uh, selling yourself, we actually damage the population. Your approach is about how you can change one meal at a time. Right. And you meet people where they are. You try to understand them before you implement any changes. And you're working in probably the most important field in medicine, which is psychiatry. These are people's emotions, their perceptions of themselves and the world. And it helps them make decisions for themselves and the world. And if we can take care of that, I think we can all move towards a better world for all of us. Well, thank you for saying that, Aisha, because, you know, I've been struggling a lot with the data that's come out during the pandemic. And I feel like you know, of course, we're doing the right thing. We we are spending time on the important safety measures that we need to move this world forward. But there are a lot of people that are suffering, and it's very hidden. Yeah. You know, the fact that it, that eleven percent of Americans considered suicide, which was the statistic that was released in twenty twenty. You know, it it spoke to. It was very frightening as a psychiatrist because it spoke to the number of people that are not reaching out or can't or unable to or ashamed to do so. So I one of the things I feel very strongly about is as much as we can is destigmatizing mental health and making it yeah. 
just a conversation that we can have. And food for me is one way to start that because food and nutrition, and it's a way in because it is so shaming often for people to bring up that they're suffering and that they that they need help. So I appreciate you both saying that because I, I feel like there needs to be more that we do in a larger forum for people to feel they can access something and and not everyone has the same resources not everyone even food not not everyone has the same resources but what what platform can can we use to help people in a more powerful way that's that's been a lot on my mind because i didn't expect that i would actually enjoy the aspects of the book that i did which is that that there's a way to share it with more people um that's a bit of a surprise yeah no, yeah, that was, that was that was kind of surprising for us as well. At the time, we were at Cedar Sinai Medical Center, and when the first book came out, we were kind of sh- shocked with the response, and more shocked with the avenues that opened up to communicate public health. Right. Which is uh, my background is public health as well, and I should, and that's what we're here for, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day. Yeah. We're here to make the most difference to lower suffering. I mean, and our, our family's motto is to help reduce suffering. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing with you, connecting here. And what you're doing as far as bringing awareness to what you just talked about, depression, anxiety, suicide, substance abuse. I'll tell you, we went, we were invited to Alaska to give a talk. And we, we said, yeah, why not? That's Alaska. I've never been to Alaska. It's so beautiful. Yeah. We went there. And we always ask to have a conversation with the community. So we go there and the talk went great, several hundred people, which was amazing. This is several years ago before pre-COVID. And then at the community conversation, it was a bunch of young people, about 70 to 80 young people. And that's unusual for us because we talk about neurodegenerative diseases and stroke, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. tend to see those mostly in the 65 plus population. Yes. Mm-hmm. But a room full of, you know, uh, mostly men in their 20s, 30s, and 40s was quite unusual. Quite unusual. Yeah. And and then at the end, we gave you our cursory conver- startup conversation, and then I said, uh, so what brings you guys here? And they said that the biggest dilemma in Alaska is, is among young men, depression, suicide, and substance abuse. And that's pre-COVID yeah. because of the distances, because of the isolation, because of the mm-hmm. darker yeah. times, you know, the times, sky. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And we were like oh. at a loss. I mean, wh- uh, this is critical. We need to start speaking. We need to create forums for the... I mean, that was a small little forum we opened up, a personal conversation, and and all these people came. Imagine if you had a better forum to connect with them, help them converse, help them to not feel ostracized or ashamed to speak about that stuff. So you're you're in the right realm now. Uh, Depression, anxiety, suicide, substance abuse is universal, ubiquitous, and in places that you wouldn't even expect or they wouldn't have spoken before. So... We're so glad you're on on board and and doing this at such a great scale. Like I said earlier, we're stuck to each other. We're going to work together. We're going to change the world together, hopefully. Yes. I love that. Thank you so much. I Um, appreciate that too. Your your work is excellent, much needed. Thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful talk. I'm sure this is one of the many talks in the future. And we will definitely stay in touch with you and keep connected because we have the same goal. Absolutely. Congratulations on your new book, the work that you're doing, because I follow you all the time and I learn so much. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the ongoing conversation. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. We'll see you soon, Uma. Thank Take you care. so much.